When you've decided to make your business a partnership with Mother Nature, you have to be prepared for her cruelty. Some things about your business will never change. They're fundamental. But how you evaluate, adapt, and pivot is all up to you. By having alternative sources of supply and different areas of production where we know what's coming and we can then predict and analyze the impact that Mother Nature's having on that crop at that time, we're able to be more capable of providing exactly what the customers are looking for at the time that they want it. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. You know, some of the companies that we work with have been around for a century. Think about how much the world has changed in the last hundred years, 10 decades. That kind of longevity requires a strong core competency, an asset base, but a company that can adapt to change, can adapt to technology and new consumer behavior. There'll always be ups and downs and transitions, that's for sure. But the common thread is a resilient brand and a narrative that combines the past with a dynamic future. All of this and more is true with Limonera, one of North America's largest citrus and avocado growers. They've been in business since 1893 and have survived pandemics, world wars, and market crashes. Limonera CEO Harold Edwards is a descendant of one of the original founding families and he strives to keep the company true to its principles while shepherding it into the future. As owners of 14,500 acres of land and water rights between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara, they've also expanded into real estate, building sorely needed planned communities in California. We talked with Harold about agribusiness in the 21st century, how technology is helping Limonera, and why he's in it for the long run. Let's get into the arena with Harold Edwards. Harold, in your own words, and maybe for those that don't know the company, can you uh, describe kind of your asset base and what you guys do every day? No, I'd be very happy to do that. And thank you again for uh, having me today and and, uh, look forward to uh, the discussion. The Limonera Company was founded in 1893 by the founder of the Union Oil Company. Little known fact, but uh, the Union Oil Company was founded in 1880 in our little town of Santa Paula, California. And in 1893, the founder of Union Oil, Wallace Hardison, uh, retired as the founder and CEO of the Union Oil Company and founded the Limonera Company with another gentleman by the name of Nathan Weston Blanchard. The company was founded to diversify the wealth that these gentlemen had created, but also to create the country's first larger scale citrus producing enterprise. And over the the now 129 years of the company's operations, the company has grown to uh, 
operate and own over 15,000 acres of very rich agricultural properties, but also a significant amount of, of water rights and um, other assets that uh, over, over time has beca- have become um, very, very valuable. The company was, by and large, uh, uh, family-held for many, many years and represents the conglomeration of eight different families who pooled their resources over, over time. My family happens to be one of those eight families. My great-great-grandfather came to this little valley in 1880 and uh, bought 1,300 acres that uh, very uh, fortunately in the 1950s they discovered oil under. Thank God for him. <laughs> Thank God. So truly the Beverly Hillbillies story of how to get involved in a, in a family agribusness. But uh, the company was and the family was very... Uh, successful in parlaying the the oil benefits into land and, and farming assets. And when I was in high school in 1985, our family merged our family farming business together with the Limonera company that was part of a business model that we've continued to uh, deploy over the years, which is to create very tax-friendly mergers of family agricultural companies. Uh, into the now publicly traded Limonera company as a way to um, expand the overall asset base, create economies of scale, but but ultimately uh, keep us relevant and that and more viable. The uh, the original uh, investment thesis in the company and and the way that the the family members viewed their their assets and and the value of the company was. This was a company that uh, every year the assets would materially appreciate over time. And as long as the company was eking out enough uh, of a profit to uh, pay income taxes and, and eke out a modest distribution and a dividend, then ultimately the company was inherently becoming more and more valuable over time, despite the economic value added that might have been destroyed as a farming company. I was brought into the company in uh, 2003 with the bold idea that I could change and reverse this idea that this is a company that's sitting on these really valuable assets and take advantage of the assets to leverage into more of a growth story. And, uh, and so that really is what I've been working on with, with my team uh, since 2003. Uh, essentially, what we've done is we've taken advantage of very, very low-cost agricultural debt. We've been a, uh, a LIBOR plus 150 borrower for over a decade now. Borrowing money under two percent, and then and then utilizing that to uh, expand the asset base, but in a way that uh, that created year-long supply chains, eliminating seasonality for our customers and the products that we produce. Uh, we become one of the largest lemon producers in the United States. We're a fairly large uh, orange citrus producer as well, and we are one of the larger avocado producers in the United States as well. The founders of this company were also the founders of Sunkist, which is a uh, a grower-owned cooperative. And uh, for 117 years, Sunkist was our go-to-market partner. So if you went into the supermarket and you bought a, a lemon that was branded Sunkist, there was a one in eight chance that uh, the Limonera company produced it. In uh, 2010, we saw an opportunity to take advantage of a slightly different business model than Sunkist deployed. And we, we left the Sunkist Grower Own Cooperative and we, get, we began to market and sell our own citrus under the Limonera brand. And that move uh, uh, provided a lot of opportunities of growth for us, but our, but our slight tweak to the business model was 
rather than just sourcing everything in California in the specific microclimates that exist here, we expanded our operations to include citrus and and, uh, products that we'd source or produce in Mexico, in Chile, and in Argentina. And by doing that, we essentially created year-round supply chains for the markets that we serve. About 30% of everything that we produce uh, finds its way into the export markets. And for us, that's predominantly Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, the other Asian tiger countries, uh, and, and with growth in China as well. And prior to the pandemic, the company has been on a really significant trajectory of growth that's been really exciting and fun to uh, begin to uh, realize the benefits of a lot of investment and time into seeing the growth story unfold in front of us. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an incredible story and it's such a long-term story. You know, you you kind of find yourself in a public company and you've been doing this for a while where you're measured uh, every 90 days and and that's the system that we're stuck with. But all of that said, you know, and I want to get to talk about the future, but obviously where you are right now, COVID 2020, the Delta variant, it's presented some logistics challenges, obviously, uh, all kinds of issues. Maybe you can just sum up how the whole uh, pandemic affected you in 2020 and, and kind of through the summer of this year and how you managed through that and and then kind of after we get that behind us, we'll talk about the future, which looks incredibly bright to me. Oh, thank you, Tom. So the the little did anybody know that uh, so eighty percent of what we do are lemons, lemons around the world, and seventy uh, percent of lemons are consumed in restaurants and bars. So when you combine a, a global pandemic with uh, the closure of restaurants and bars, it's a pretty difficult formula for a for a lemon supplier. Now, we did our, our very best to pivot outside of the slowdown or, in, in many cases, the elimination of the, of the food service business that we do and pivoted to retail and, and, and had some really great gains and won over some new customers. We made strategic investments into bagging equipment and uh, things that made our, our approach to retail a lot more friendly. If you have had an opportunity to shop in a supermarket, there's a much better chance that you'll now see us out there because 70% of what we did before was in a restaurant and bars, and 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 typically consumers don't like the sticker that we put on our citrus floating in their, in their drinks. So In their vodka soda, yeah. <laughs> we tend not to sticker that fruit. So the nice thing about our retail penetration and growth is that we believe that that is sustainable. And as, as food service begins to recover restaurants and bars reopen, the export markets find their way back to health. And we we believe we're positioned for some really exciting growth, not only uh, taking advantage of strategic investments that we've made in non-bearing acreage that is beginning to bear more and more fruit every year, but also in becoming an attractive marketing and sales option for outside growers that we work with. And when you look at 2022, you know, it's it's interesting when you look at the share price you know, you're within a couple of bucks from the COVID low of 2020, but a lot of progress has been made probably on cost cutting, balance sheet type stuff. And then obviously uh, uh, the ebbs and flow of a recovery. Obviously, you're not giving guidance here in any uh, meaningful way, but can you talk about how you might see the supply demand dynamics, pricing, easing of the uh, logistical issues as you look out into 2022? What has to happen to get kind of more normalized? 
So the great, the great part about our business is that uh, as bad as one year might be, the next year you get to live to fight again. It's sort of the beauty of, of producing perishable produce. And uh, the outlook for next year is, uh, is bullish, even with the opaqueness of the recovery from the pandemic. But for one, there's many more restaurants and bars opened. Uh, we think that uh, you know the food service domestically in uh, in the United States has recovered to somewhere between eighty to ninety percent of pre-pandemic levels, so that's fantastic for us and, and a great opportunity. We see larger crops for next year, and uh, the the team has really done a great job uh, working through this really difficult time, focusing on costs as you mentioned, but also doing a better job with what we call fresh utilization selling the, uh, as much of what we produce on the trees and our outside growers produce on their trees into the fresh market. Just for reference, if we, if we can sell uh, that lemon fresh into the fresh market, we're getting somewhere around $23, a 40-pound carton for that today, versus if you can't sell it fresh and you have to send it to the juice plant, we're getting about $2 a carton. So you see the massive economic incentive to get it to go fresh. So that's really our business is how do we figure out how to not only produce fresh fresh products, but also how can we work more closely with Mother Nature to anticipate what's coming so we can set up programs at retail and food service to sell our products more effectively and uh, sell it all the way through the system. So with that said, I think that uh, next year looks uh, really positive. Uh, there, there's much smaller global crops in other parts of the world that sometimes make the markets more crowded. We're looking at uh, larger crops across our own production and the, the various producing areas that we work with. And uh, I think that all bodes well for strong growth in the lemon side of the business, even if the export markets take more time to recover and even if the actual demand takes some time because of the pandemic to fully recover to pre-pandemic levels here. Yep. Yep. Makes total sense. And then... Um Harold, another part of the business, which is super interesting that a lot of companies don't have, is the the real estate component that you have publicly uh, told shareholders that you're monetizing. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Harvest at Liminera and, and East Area 2 and how that fits into the whole strategy. Yeah, so the way to kind of think about our company is, um, even though we've been making a lot of noise recently about the growth part of the story and the sustainable growth in our citrus business with our One World of Citrus business model, uh, which we do believe provides great opportunities for growth long term, but we're really a company that's probably more closely uh, like a company like the Irvine Company or the Newhall Land and Farming Company. The difference is those companies... Uh, exclusively focused on their assets and their real estate values and ultimately monetized their assets slowly over time into what is now Orange County and, and Northern Los Angeles counties. So we're, we're a much smaller equivalent in Ventura County. And so as sort of the result of having all these, these legacy assets that are contiguous to urban centers and cities, when it's time for those cities to grow, uh, we're able to create a higher and better use for those assets and convert them from an agricultural use into an urban development use. And we started a project, gosh, it's, it's almost 18 years ago, which we have arrived to today called the Harvest at Limonera. We received the entitlement to produce 1,500 lots, and we sell finished lots to home builders. We put a, uh, a partnership together with a very strong real estate development partner called the Lewis Group, who has a long legacy originally in home building, but now in land development and uh, master plan community development. And uh, it was almost 
like magic. The as bad as the pandemic was for our company on the the lemon and the citrus side of the business, it was that much good in the real estate development side of the business because fortuitously we had laid down the highest speeds of internet connectivity, broadband investments into the community. And when everybody was forced to work from home and stay at home and and need the internet to to telecommuter to work from home with we were the fastest connection in Ventura County at a time where everybody wanted to get out of the cities and, and move out into a less densely populated area. So from March of 2020, really when the pandemic really manifested itself here, we started to enjoy this, this amazing uh, situation where our, our guest builders literally could not build homes fast enough to sell. And what was originally pro forma at one to two houses a week of sales, we're moving along at a clip of seven to 10 houses a week. We've run out of product in certain phases of the project. To date, we've sold 540 lots of which 450 homes have now been built and sold. We're negotiating on our next round of lots with our guest builders, which include Lennar, KB Homes, K Hobdanian, some of the largest uh, national home builders that are out there. The values of the lots have, have appreciated over 20%. Basically, the, the project has accelerated at a, at a level that was really beyond our wildest expectation. The type of product that we're offering, the quote-unquote affordability of the products that are being sold in the, in the low interest rate environment has been a, just a real friend to this project. And we expect to see $80 million come back to the Lehman Era company over the next six years. Although those pro formas and those models are all changing based on the appreciation of lots, which should create more benefit to the company. But also uh, the, the city's desire to see more lots be developed in the project, which will bring further benefit to the community. So there's a lot of great things going on there. And um, the projected cash flows are really projected to become significant at the end of 2022. So we're almost there. We've had a lot of uh, investors that have been very patient with us as we've gone through this project. But it's uh, very, very exciting and uh, sort of in, in position to create significant value for Lehmanair shareholders. With companies taking on debt through COVID, there's been a greater emphasis on balance sheet health, and Liminera has a unique one with assets that include land and water rights. I wanted to know how Harold views the balance sheet and what's his optimal capital structure over the next phase of growth. No, I really appreciate that question because that that is the that's the story of the company. So over sixty percent of the assets on the balance sheet are listed on the balance sheet at historical book values. I'm actually doing this this podcast. Uh, in the middle of a 3,000-acre lemon and avocado ranch where our headquarters is. And and that property is on the books for $400 an acre. And the fair market value of this land today is somewhere between $100,000 and $110,000 an acre. So if you just take this one ranch, just this one ranch is, is worth more than the entire market cap of the company. The sort of approximate disparity between the book value and the fair market value is somewhere between three to five times. With the scarcity of water that's going on in, in California and, and the challenges that that's presenting and, and the, the water assets and the water resources that the company manages and controls, you know, I, I believe that there's, a, you know, there's an enterprise value that's potentially up, upwards of a billion dollars. 
And so from the one hand, it's frustrating to be viewed on a quarter to quarter growth story where we're missing analyst numbers and trying to explain things through our partnerships with Mother Nature. But uh, as we begin to realize some of the, the monetization benefits of some of the assets, we actually are, are able to monetize some of the both the land and the water uh, resources and then see the One World of Citrus business model kick into a 40 to $50 million annual EBITDA contributor. I think you're going you're gonna to start seeing the appreciation of that enterprise value more closely related to what I believe the company's really worth. Yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, in, in COVID, when uh, something like this, a pandemic hits, there's so much uncertainty. Lots of industries get painted with a certain brush. A lot of companies, you know, even stocks in general, get a discount, even though the market is kind of ripping in some areas. You know, things like that get overlooked in the short term, but but there's always a long-term correlation between, you know, earnings per share and you know, balance sheet values and the value of the company. And it's just a matter of telling the story, which which today is a great example of, of getting out there and spending a little bit more time than usual on topics that you don't have a lot of time to discuss on a, a 30-minute uh, earnings call where you're reviewing those results. To me, that's just like completely fascinating. Switching gears a little bit, one thing I did want to close the loop on was capital allocation. You do pay a dividend. It's been very uh, consistent. I was talking about the the stock earlier being, you know, within a couple of bucks of kind of the COVID low, but you have a, a dividend yield that kind of supports the stock where it is. As that real estate money comes in and as the business uh, turns a little bit, what, what are your thoughts on uh, and the board's thoughts on capital allocation uh, going forward and, and how do you how do you do that in, in the most efficient way uh, for for your stakeholders? So we, we're carrying about $120 million of long-term debt right now, and we have great credit facilities in place, uh, wonderful lending partners with the farm credit system. And uh, that's all great at 2% borrowing costs, but as inflation finally manifests, I've been saying, oh my gosh, inflation's about to start for the last 10 years. So this time I think I really mean it. You know, We're going to use some of those proceeds to right-size the balance sheet and pay some of that debt down. With the projected cash flows that are coming, there's certainly amount of debt that we will carry, but we also are are very interested in being more acquisitive. We pulled the reins back a little bit uh, because of the pandemic and the uncertainty. You know, we really went into survival mode in 2020, and the team did a phenomenal job working with uh, the the resources it, it it had at its disposal to to get through a really challenging sort of 12 to 24 months that we find ourselves coming out of. But, you know, just year on year, we've seen a a $28 million swing to the positive in cash flow from operations. So we're not back to pre-pandemic sort of trajectories, but we're getting closer. And as that cash flows, we, you know, we'll right size the balance sheet and then uh, load up a bunch of powder to uh, take the next step in the company's growth. We have some really interesting ideas of how to grow and what to grow into. Uh, we'd like to be more forward in the distribution and supply chain. Uh, we would like to get closer to customers. We want to make uh, the products that we produce more accessible and more easily serviced to our retail and our food service customers out there. And so you'll you'll see us begin to deploy capital more into that space to, I think, uh, further perfect, if you will, better our our supply chains and our delivery capabilities to our customers. Yeah, no, that's great. And um, with the hundred plus year history, you know, you're you're always working on perfection. Um, I always, 
even think about ICR and I have a vision in my head for what it's supposed to be someday and we kind of never get there, but that's okay. You know, you're working on it. I do know one of the things that you're spending some money on is kind of the digital transformation of the business. And, you know, I would imagine that not every competitor of yours has the financial wherewithal and the the asset base to do that. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you're bringing technology into the business to get closer to those customers, have a have a better brand experience with them, and, and how that ultimately will benefit all stakeholders. So that's probably the most exciting part of our business right now. And, and really the thing that's kept me super motivated during this really challenging, difficult time of, of this pandemic. We began to take inventory of our, of our information systems and our ERP systems and analyze how we were managing our processes and our entire supply chain from our trees all the way through our supply chains to our customers. And, and we realized that, and maybe this isn't that big of a surprise, but to me, I was, I was surprised, especially as the CEO of the company, that in our 128 years of, of being in this business, we really hadn't changed our, our processes very much in those 128 years of operations. And we just, as we went through and analyzed each process, we realized that there was so much, we, so much more we could do by changing our, our procedures and our processes to better fit technology that has completely changed as it relates to getting, getting information and data at the production level of our trees, the way we irrigate, the way we fertilize, the way we forecast. And so what we've done is we've, we've implemented technology that, uh, that actually gives us better predictive models that tells us not only when our fruit is going to be ready to harvest, but what the fruit that's going to be harvested is going to be like from a grade and size perspective. And what that allows us to do is look out 30, 60, 90, 180 days and create very specific programs for our specific customers at food service and retail that gives us a much better opportunity to have a better job of actually selling that fruit all the way through the system to, to capture those economic benefits of higher fresh utilization that I was speaking about earlier. We're also taking that, that technology and then integrating it and implementing it with, uh, with a new ERP system that we're in the process of implementing. And, you know, I think when anybody says ERP, the first response that anybody in management would, would sort of give you is, it's, oh, great, it's like getting a root canal. And uh, this one's different. I mean, I've got basically entire organization motivated to see the benefits that are going to come with these investments. And when you have everybody on the on the team pulling in the same direction, it just it, it's making it a lot more fun and a lot more interesting, and it's it's giving us tools that are going to make us that much better at doing a better job for our customers and serving our customers in a better way. You know, if your business is agriculture, you're always going to be dependent on nature to some degree. But technology, whether it's predictive models or supply chain efficiencies, can give you the tools to mitigate that risk. I asked Harold how they incorporate technology to stay ahead of the curve. When you've decided to make your business a partnership with Mother Nature, 
you have to be prepared for her cruelty. Mother Nature is not always the kindest. And the one thing that we've, we've learned to understand about Mother Nature is she's completely unpredictable. And so by having alternative sources of supply and different areas of production where we know what's coming and we can then uh, predict and analyze the impact that Mother Nature's having on that crop at that time, we're able to shuck and jive, bob and weave, I don't know how you want to say it, but, but be adroit in moving around our, our sourcing areas to be more capable of providing exactly what the customers are looking for at the time that they, they want it. And that's the part that uh, technology can really benefit us from. Yeah, the, the uh, weather's interesting. Yeah, um, you know, the one thing that you never want to say this, but when you have supply chain disruption, that really turns into big benefits for us in, in our business. And because we're producing a commodity, when you have a supply chain disruption, it gives you a great opportunity to take advantage of pricing. And so you, you don't want to root for the freeze, but sometimes you do. And so when, when those situations present themselves, um, we've tried to be thoughtful on, on the assets that we manage, where those assets are, and, and how we manage them to take advantage of those supply chain disruptions that do happen from time to time. Yeah. Well, listen, Harold, my last question, this has been a quick half hour and super interesting. My last question is, you know, you've been doing this for a long time as a public company CEO, telling your story relentlessly, which you should be doing. You know, when you meet with investors in particular, what do you think they miss when they're looking at the company and considering an investment in the company? You know, there's a lot of cool things that you guys have that other companies don't have. What do you think people kind of, what don't they get when they're, when they're taking a look at the company? I think the volatility of the quarter to quarter earnings and the year to year earnings and cash flows, especially influenced by things like pandemics and real estate ups and downs and things like that, confuse the broader story. But it's really the, it's really the story of the balance sheet, the undervalued assets, the, the fact that, uh, you know, a very high percentage of the assets on the balance sheet are, are recorded at, at historical book values and, and don't even come close to mirroring fair market value. And that's all, I guess, great, at least for a story, if there were no plans to monetize. But you've got a very progressive board working with, a, you know, a very progressive management team that that are being thoughtful in how to monetize these resources. And I think you're going to see a lot of benefits coming with the development of the global uh, One World of Citrus business model, but also the monetization of specific assets whose time has come to seek a higher and better use. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting for us because it, it creates a lot of potential for capital generation and capital creation, but ultimately for shareholder value creation and, and, and growth. And, you know, we've been a slow burn. It's taken quite a while to get here, but we're, we're just right on the cusp of some really exciting monetization that I think will make the story really compelling for investors. A company like Luminera can confound short-term investors and traders. The P&L simply doesn't tell the full story with its EPS ebbs and flows. It's the value of the asset base that's key. That's your backstop as the company diversifies risks through technology and global distribution. The payoff is not only increased visibility, but an asset base that appreciates day by day, quarter by quarter, year by year. It's just a very unique and impressive company that people should be paying attention to.
I'd like to thank Harold Edwards of Luminera for joining us. The future of that company is in great hands with him and his senior team. Made a lot of progress, super impressive. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behaviors. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.